I had a very unusual childhood. I just couldn't wait to get out and to explore the world and to see what's possible. Got approached by the parent company of The Iconic. I joined Junkoi, a high-end fashion couture brand. I had this personal problem with bras. I'm literally wearing the wrong product every day. Started customizing bras for myself. I started customizing bras for my friends. She had this incredible vision and the product and the thinking. I just felt fire in my belly and I was like, yes, that is it. What does it really take to disrupt an entire industry and get a business off the ground? Welcome to the incredible story of Margot and Maria, the co-founders behind bra tech startup, The One Two. In this five-part series, we go deeper than we've ever gone before, peeling back the curtain to reveal the truth about starting a business. Proudly hosted by Lady Brains, this is the journey of two women creating a product for women in a category that has largely been neglected and forging their own way in a male-dominated business world. From meeting at an accelerator program to going all in, including birthing a real life and a business baby, raising capital and finally launching into the world. This story has it all. First, we hear from Margot. I had a very unusual childhood. I was born in Tasmania and then we left there when I was five and we spent the next like six years traveling around Australia, literally living in a tent, doing distance education. I went to seven different primary schools. So stability was not clearly the forefront of my parents' priorities. Parents do these crazy things to kids. There's two options. It either like screws them up or it builds resilience. And, and I was fortunate that I think for me, it built resilience. It was just normal for me. It definitely was a foundation of this limitless kind of thinking and approach to things. I was young and naive and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an investment banker and I'm going to earn a ton of money. And through that ton of money, I'm going to be able to autonomously like have all of this impact. Then when it kind of came the point to apply for these investment banking jobs, I met someone who was like, oh, you should also apply for management consulting. And through the process, I realized that oh, management consulting might actually be a job that I'm more interested in doing and a skill set that might set me up for doing more interesting things down the track. So Margot forged ahead with her career as a management consultant and ended up, of all places, in Africa. It was there that she worked at a telco company by day and went on safari at night. It was a magical experience. But a couple of years in, she was approached by an iconic Aussie brand with an opportunity that was just too good to turn down. It was when I was there that I also got approached by the company that's now the Iconic, the, the parent company of the Iconic here in Australia. And they said, look, we're starting this business. Would you like to come and be part of the leadership team to do that? And at the time I'd been looking, you know, I've, I did have my finger on the entrepreneurial pulse, I guess, to the extent that I was really aware that there was this huge opportunity in fashion commerce in Australia that hadn't kind of happened yet and that it needed to happen. And so when they approached me about that, I got super excited and moved back to Australia and left management consulting to join there. That was a huge opportunity. I mean, the iconic is obviously very iconic in yeah. Australia, but to 
make that transition from telco or mining into fashion? I mean, was there a deep desire? I think it was about seeing the opportunity. I was at this point in management consulting where I was good at it. I'd had a couple of promotions, but it was starting to feel not as challenging to me. It was her first experience in a startup environment. And while she loved the energy, pace and hustle, cracks in the founding team slowly started to appear. In doing a startup, it's really important that if you're part of the founding team or the leadership team, that you have really aligned values and approaches to the way that you want to build that business. And within the iconic, it was this global movement where they were rolling out this business in multiple locations across the world. And we were just one here in Australia. The founding team wasn't put together in a thoughtful way. We were all strangers to each other and we all shared these similar backgrounds, but were ambitious. And I think through that process, I realized that I wanted to have more control of who I wanted to be doing a startup with and who I wanted to be in the tent with. When the CEO of the Iconics parent company, Rocket Group, called her into his office with an offer to grow a new furniture brand called Delani, she jumped at the opportunity. The business had just launched and they needed a proven leader to take it to the next level. And Margot was just the right person. We grew it to $3.5 million run rate revenue in six months. And at that point, there was a decision, global decision to withdraw the particular business. It was high-end homeware and furniture flash sales. So we were doing super well and we were always like the top of the charts globally, but they ultimately decided that they wanted to focus on Europe and Brazil and they withdrew from all other geographies. And so we had this two week, they like we got called up um, and they gave us two weeks and they said, we want you to shut this business down in two weeks. And we said, well, that's completely absurd. We've built this really valuable asset. We've built this team. Like, why don't you let us sell it? And ultimately, we, we pulled it off where like over that, that, those few weeks that we had, we had the, the note, we literally were given the notice period of our employees to sell the business. Otherwise, it was going to be shut down and we were able to pull that off and we sold it. We were very different as a founding team and we were very principled. We were very clear in what our roles were and we didn't try and cross over into each other's areas. We were very trusting of each other and I think That to me remains a super important lesson today is like as co-founders, you have to trust that if something's not going well in the other person's camp, that it's because it's really, really hard. And then without warning, Rocket Group made the decision to close Daylani, despite the fact the business was turning over millions. The owners gave Margot two weeks to shut the entire operation down and let the entire team go. Everything Margot had worked so hard for was gone. We got called up and they gave us two weeks and they said, we want you to shut this business down in two weeks. And we said, well, that's completely absurd. We've built this really valuable asset. We've built this team. Why don't you let us sell it? And we were able to pull that off and we sold it. So you sold Delani within four weeks, which is a huge, huge achievement. I bet you're also then standing there scratching your head going, well, what's next? Mm -hmm. I'd had this niggling thing in the background this whole time. I had this personal problem with bras. 
I thought that I just had this weird body that didn't fit bras properly and not in a good way, right? Like I have tried so many on, I've gone to David Jones, I've had this lady poking me and telling me that it's the best I can do when it clearly doesn't fit me. My bar is not very high. I just want it to be beautiful and comfortable and work under clothes and scoured the world and could not find a bra that met those basic criteria. And then I was like, well, maybe this could be a business. But I also was like, maybe it can't be. Like this industry has been around for hundreds of years. Like, is it even actually possible to improve on it, to do something different with it? I kind of had enough answers and enough curiosity that I kind of kept going deeper and deeper into the bra problem. I learned about like how to even identify a good fit, like what's a good structure for a bra. That kind of became this foundation of knowledge that I then started customizing bras for myself. I started customizing bras for my friends. I went to China and observed the manufacturing process for bras and came up with this way of really cost-effectively creating a custom-fitted bra. It was called Bipreve, beautiful French-style lace underwear and then simple cup bras with beautiful French kind of finishings on them. I did that for nearly two years and it was going super well. All my friends genuinely started buying from me and our net promoter score was really high, 80-90%, which is insanely high. Our return rate was like crazily low, but it was hard. Like startups are hard and I was tired and then I fell pregnant with my daughter. It was a super brutal pregnancy and so I ended up putting the whole thing on hold. Despite the exhaustion, Margot couldn't quite bring herself to give up on the idea of radically improving bras for women right around the world. There was something deep in her gut saying she wanted to give it one last shot, but to do so, she wanted someone to help her. She wanted to find a co-founder. I grew up in Siberia, deep in the snow, where it would have four seasons, but winter would be at least four to six months a year, and the average temperature would be going down to minus 45 Celsius, and you'd be still going to school. I grew up basically in the 90s, which was a very turbulent and very tough time for the country. It sort of went from communism, where everything was given to you by the government. You were not given much, but you were still given a lot of things, this new way of being where you now could take charge of the opportunities, but a lot of people just didn't necessarily know how to do it and they were not prepared for it. You need that sense of safety and belonging. Another part is you get really used to suffering. I literally grew up more or less within the vicinity of a few kilometers without necessarily exploring much. So I feel like as I was growing up, the main thing that was really clear to me, I just couldn't wait to get out and to explore the world and to see what's possible. So when I was choosing what to do for my degree, when I went to uni, I chose Chinese just because I thought that another European language, you could go and sort of study on the side, but Chinese specifically and kind of Eastern languages group felt like you can't just go and pick it up by yourself. And so it made sense to me to spend five years of my life on 
learning that and learning to write and learning to read and learning everything about the culture. Meet Maria. As you've just heard, she grew up in Siberia, one of the most remote places in the world. And now, as an adult, she's learning Chinese, one of the hardest languages in the world. She knew she didn't want to go down the traditional pathway and become a translator or teacher. So she started thinking about how well she could use these skills. And eventually, she landed a job in tech. I was hired to join their technical support department, which funny enough, during that time, they were having a lot of unhappy customers from the US and they were complaining about the level of English that their tech people were having. So I kind of fell into this really random opportunity. They hired me because I could speak English, but I didn't know anything about software. I also realized that they had an office in Beijing. I found an opportunity to basically relocate myself to China. So the population of my hometown was just over 100,000 people. And the population of Beijing was 25 million people, which is the population of whole Australia. I loved it. The energy, the movement felt like I finally found my rhythm. My first salary when I moved there was basically $200 a month, out of which I was paying $150 for my basically tiny little room. And then I had $50 left for food and everything else that I was doing. During the time, it didn't bother me. It just felt like, oh, what a challenge. I love it. Great. <laughs> Let's see how can I save this couple of dollars and maybe not eat for another couple of days. Another amazing thing that happened to me in Beijing also that I met my husband. Fast forward four years and Maria had hustled her way from earning $200 a month in Beijing to becoming a celebrated consultant at top tier management consulting firm McKinsey. But after four years working in high-stress management consulting roles, again, she started to feel a little restless, like there was an untapped fountain of creativity within her that wasn't fully being recognized. She was craving something new, something soulful and something fresh. I just needed a breath of fresh air in terms of creativity, soulfulness, environment where it's not just about how well you think constantly and how much of a good problem solver you are. I started to ask questions of myself at the time. What does that feminine way of working and feminine way of leadership look like? Because I felt like I'm just surrounded by this masculinity and by masculine way of thinking. It felt like the expectation is still you will operate as a man and you will think in a very masculine way, but you're a woman. It's not that, okay, you're a woman and let's understand what are the kind of strengths that you specifically bring. It's, yeah, sure, your strengths are fantastic as long as they fit into the framework of the work and that we do and the way we do it. You feel like you're constantly covering up how you are and you're trying to fit in again and again. And I kind of, I kept thinking, I had this visualization, you come as a square and they shape you up to be a circle. It's a great way. The circle is incredibly beautiful. It's really efficient and it's really smart, but it's still a circle. It's not a square. And you feel like, oh, but where are my edges? What, I just feel like I'm not fully expressed. Felt it more and more inside of me that I needed that sense of expression. And was interesting that during that time, I was already spending a bit of time and helping out my friend. When I was in Australia, she was in New York and she went through her own very interesting journey of becoming an artist and a fashion designer. She became a breath of fresh air for me. The type of work that she was doing was just so fundamentally different to what I was doing. She was pushing the thinking on what 
garments are and what clothing is and why do we wear clothing the way we do. And again, coming from management consulting, that level of thinking was just really, really attractive. The more time I was spending in New York, the more both of us felt that actually our skill sets and because we're friends could have been a really nice mix. So she had this incredible vision and the product and the thinking, but didn't know what to do with it and how to really bring it and how to commercialize it and how to bring it to life. And I had the commercial and operational thinking and I was craving something much more creative and something much more meaningful. And so basically I jumped the ship, packed my bags and moved to New York. I joined my friend Maria, helping her build Junkoi, which is a high-end fashion couture brand that what became a reality in New York was actually the execution part for me became so uncomfortable because nothing is certain. No strategy can be written. You're just always in the mercy of that genius that can come at 3 a.m. or 5 a.m., two hours before the deadline when you need to submit something to the manufacturer. Maria was in New York for two years and with her business partner and friend, also Maria, they achieved some incredible things. They hosted runway shows at New York Fashion Week. Anna Wintour and Beyonce were fans of their brand. I mean, it was like a dream. But as someone who craved certainty, structure and process, it eventually became a challenging environment for Maria and she decided to take a step back from the business. She dug deep and went inward trying to uncover what was going to be next. So once I decided to take a step back with Maria specifically, I really felt, you know, this time together was so intense and I needed to take a step back and understand what I wanted to do and what is important to me and what is my next step supposed to be. So I actually took some time off and went on a sabbatical with my husband. COVID happened and I found myself luckily stuck in Australia. That's where I met Margot. Like any great co-founder dating story, Margot and Maria met on Zoom. It was in the depths of the global pandemic, June 2020, that they'd both joined an incubator program called Antla. Margot to try and find herself a co-founder and Maria to see if it would help her discover her next opportunity. So imagine you have 80 people in a single cohort and the idea is to find your match to be able to build a business and get an investment. So it's all about finding your match, right? So every day you test your idea, you test somebody else's idea, and you're basically dating and you're testing out your business relationship. And as in any love story environment, would identify a potential match and they would be sitting somewhere in a corner working together and everybody would be thinking, oh, that's it. You know, this person was amazing, but they're already taken. Should I go and pursue them? Should I not? And they would be dating for weeks and weeks on end and everybody would already assume that, of course, they're going to be together. Of course, they're going to get an investment. They're actually the certain one. And then drama, they break up. Now this person is free. Who's taking them? What's going to happen? And so this kind of decoupling, recoupling, we're both in this program. I'd arrived with my existing business and my objective was to test whether it was something that I wanted to like really keep pushing to see if I could find someone who I was excited to do it with, 
because I had realized that I really didn't want to do it by myself. And so I very much through the program was just like talking about this idea with bras and trying to find the right person who might be interested. And the hilarious thing was that because of like Maria's background, she was a really obvious match, but we were very resistant to meeting each other. And so we like both just kept having these moments where people in the program would say to us, look, Margot, you need to meet with Maria. She's just come back from doing fashion in New York. And I'd be like, okay, great. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I do not want to work with a fashion person. And I think Maria was similar. So it actually took us quite a while within this program to even have an initial conversation. That's funny. It's almost like don't judge a book by its cover. People telling me, well, Maria, you just came back from doing fashion. Bras is fashion. Don't you want to do that? And because I was so exhausted by the whole creativity and fashion in New York, the last thing I wanted to do was fashion. So I fundamentally didn't even consider that. And again, for me, bras was never necessarily a problem. I thought there is not a big problem. So it was just literally on the back of my mind to even properly meet and talk. When I met Maria, it was just like this breath of fresh air. And this was COVID. So it was all on Zoom. So we first met on Zoom and Maria had reached out and said like, oh, you know, everyone's telling me we should meet. So we should actually do it. And I was like, yeah, fine. And then like when we actually talked, I was like, she's just there and she looks so fresh. She's got all of these ideas and she's got like brands she's really interested in. And we just had this really enjoyable kind of conversation. And it was so interesting to me because one of the things that I'd been afraid of was people, you know, like I'm really, was really clear around what I wanted my role to be and what I'm good at. And that is about product and it's about customer. And so I was really scared of people who, you know, I'd had like a few conversations with different people along the way who'd been keen. And then it was really clear that what they wanted was the same job that I wanted. And so I really didn't want to end up in that situation. But because Maria, like Maria didn't necessarily even allay that fear. Like she was really excited about different brands and how they worked and their identities, but she had such an exciting way of talking about it and fresh way of talking about it that I was like, oh, this feels like someone who I can really throw things up with and we can really figure out like, oh, is this something? And like, I could really enjoy having the debate with her. And so I got really excited quite quickly and it took her longer to come around. (laughs) (laughs) So after that first meeting, did it feel like, oh, I'm interested in this person. I perhaps want to start dating this person. (laughs) Is that what, what, you know, crossed both of your minds? Yeah, I felt like definitely I wanted to continue chatting for sure. It was, it sort of shifted from definitely no to, oh, actually it's quite nice. I had my like spreadsheet of everybody that was at the program and I categorized them all by whether I thought it was worth talking to them at all, whether there was a potential match there. And then I had my little notes next to everybody as to what I thought. So then I started doing what you do when you like have a crush on someone. I started hanging out where she hangs out. (laughs) Okay, this is great. So a little bit stalkerish, yeah, yeah. Maria, what was going on in your head at the time? Like, why were you hesitant? And then what was the point where you were like, hmm, actually, this does feel right? Yeah, well, I just basically went through a couple of weeks of testing my ideas out. So I kind of was at the stage where, okay, I think my idea is actually not really great, or actually, I don't want to do my ideas. And so it's kind of processing that. And, you know, you feel a little bit lost. and You're like, okay, well, what am I going to do next? And Margaret was patiently waiting 
And I said, let's do it. Maria popped the question. I did. (laughs) When Maria popped the question, I had to say, yes, like I would love to do this business with you. Obviously, I've been chasing you around for a while, but I have something I need to tell you first, which is that I'm 12 weeks pregnant. And the reason I haven't been going for sushi bowls with you (laughs) is not that I have some weird thing against sashimi. It's actually that I physically couldn't eat that. And then Maria responded in the most amazing way. When Margot told me, again, you know, it's like a movie in your mind. I'm like, oh my God, all of this time I was trying to figure out how to support women, you know, being pro-women in all sorts of ways. And here we are, two women potentially building a business for women, female product, and we can birth a baby together. (laughs) Maria popped the question and Margot said yes. And after celebrating the fact that they'd found each other and fallen in co-founder love, They got stuck into the nitty-gritty of their prenup, the shareholder agreement. So we decided to write a prenup together. Basically, what that prenup did was it laid out a process of like what could go wrong and if this goes wrong, what do we agree a fair outcome is. And, you know, it was a really jarring thing to do because you're in this like early stages of working with someone, you're getting along really well, it's really positive, you're pitching this like huge thing. And then, you know, where they're sitting and imagining every worst case scenario and playing out what would come of it. And I think for me, what was like really positive about that experience is I felt like we were very aligned in what we thought their outcomes would be. And even in the way, as we went through that kind of conversation about all these negative scenarios, we're both having a real downer moments to do that. We're both able to contextualize it, come up for air and still be excited about it. And that's just a core startup skill set is the ability to take all of these hits and then still bounce back and be positive and optimistic. And yeah, it brought us closer. I guess in order to understand what could potentially go wrong down the track, you also had to know what was going to go right. Like what was the shared vision for this business? I mean, you've just got to know each other and here you are sitting down over coffee, over wine, I'm sure, going, this is what we are going to do. What did that vision look like? We feel like there is this huge unmet need across women who are buying bras from when they're 14 years old to when they're 65 years old to when they're pregnant and nursing a baby. We feel like the industry in general has underserviced women for a really long time and there's an opportunity for a specialist player to create a much better solution to do it in a way that's aligned with the values of what we hope to see in the world, which is ethically produced, made sustainably and leading the industry in sustainability, having a positive impact of being really passionate about the women who are our customers, but but also more broadly. And we believe that there's an opportunity to build this as a platform and to have that huge position. And this is a huge industry, so it's a very ambitious undertaking. <laughs> what was interesting when I met Margot, again, I actually didn't think that bras is such a massive of a problem. It fitted me poorly. And I basically went through this process of feeling the feelings of, 
oh my God, I am in my 30s. I feel like I'm strong and independent. I can do whatever I want. But look at me. I'm literally wearing the wrong product every day of my life and I'm spending money to buy that. And that was a bit of a, you know, first I felt that hopeful sensation of, oh, wow, first of all, look at me. Like it actually feels and looks great. It feels really comfortable. And then suddenly it felt so frustrating and angry that are you telling me that all my life I was buying the wrong size and nobody told me? Are you for real? And that journey really created that sense of, oh my God, I think there's such a big opportunity. If I feel this way, how many more women could probably feel this way? How many of us don't even know that we're in the wrong size? How many of us sign up for this kind of average product that we wear every day? And that sense of almost kind of revolution and kind of disruption, it just, I just felt fire in my belly. And I was like, yes, that is it. The two of them were on board, committed to the task of making this business a reality. Their prenup was signed and they had a baby on the way. There was a lot to do. So to launch this brand, we needed to develop a world-leading fit algorithm, which meant founding technologists, designing it, making sure it worked. We needed a brand that could really give life to this thing and make it feel like something that women wanted to wear every day and it transformed their experience. Brows are hugely complex. We needed more than 20 suppliers to supply us straps, cups, every single part that you need. We needed a whole host of fit models. We were hitting up all of our friends and family so that we could deliver on this idea of trying a whole bunch of different sizes and making sure they all worked. And then while I was so heavily pregnant, we also needed to go out and be able to finance all of this with a sizable amount of capital. We met at Antler in June 2020 and started working together in August. The baby was due in December and we thought we're going to launch in February 2021. Coming up in the next episode, the highs and lows of fundraising. Most of the angel investors are men. Most of the venture capitalists are men. And when we walk into that room, we are two women who've got a bra brand. We literally were pitching to an investor the day before Margot went to the hospital to have the baby, and she didn't question it once. We need checks in the door by next Friday. Are you in or are you out?